This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Story, a new type of workspace providing personalised and flexible working environments for ambitious businesses in great locations around central London. Their nimble approach gives you lots of flexibility around the size of your office, how long you have it for, and how it looks. They work with you to give your office the look and feel you want so your brand stands out. Partnering with award-winning architects and designers, Story works with you to customise your office's layout and design to help optimise your work environment. Story also own and manage all of their buildings, so they can take care of everything for you with a single point of contact and online help desk for your convenience. With over 7 million square feet of office space across London, Story is agile enough to help when your company is ready to expand. There's also a great opportunity to connect with a whole network of businesses with similar interests and goals to yours. To check them out for yourself, head to www.story.co.uk. That's S-T-O-R-E-Y.co.uk. Or click the link in our show notes. Thank you very much to Story. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast for working women with me, Tegi Uagba. Today I've got the fabulous Femi Feto in the hot seat, who is executive editor and beauty director at Glamour magazine, a columnist for the Observer newspaper, and former beauty editor at British Vogue. Femi has over 15 years experience working within fashion and beauty journalism, and has either written or worked for pretty much all of the major publications, including Elle, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, The Sunday Times, I could really go on. She's recently published Palette, a carefully curated beauty guide specifically aimed at women of colour, which is really a first of its kind. British Vogue's editor-in-chief, Edward Enninville, has described it as groundbreaking and essential reading. And having got my hands on a copy a few weeks ago, I have to agree, I absolutely love it. As you might expect, Fumi and I got deep on the subject of beauty, with Fumi really generously sharing her own personal beauty journey and the incredible circumstances and story that prompted her to go natural. We also talked about navigating the predominantly white spaces of the fashion industry as a black woman and the wider issues that still persist when it comes to how brands interact with black consumers, from colorism and discriminatory marketing tactics to microaggressions and outright racism. Plus, Femi shares her thoughts on the so-called death of print media and what media outlets need to be doing in order to adapt to our new digital reality. Here she is. I guess it came about initially because I realised there are a lot of women of colour who were asking me about products they could use for their skin or their hair, um, makeup recommendations. And it just happened so consistently that I thought, okay, something's missing here. You know, the media either isn't really speaking to these women or, you know, retailers aren't speaking to them or brands aren't speaking to them. Whatever the case was, I just felt there was some sort of disconnect um, that I was just having random women sometimes. I've had women run up to me in the street. I've had women ask me in tube stations. I've had, you know, people at dinner parties or at events or family, friends, strangers, you know, people on social media asking me for lots of different bits of information. And I, it just made me think, actually, I'm taking it for granted that I have this information and therefore everybody else knows this. And that was the seed that sort of inspired the book. I only really had, what, maybe seven months 
wow. to put it all together. So it was a really, really tight turnaround. And it's a chunky book. Like yeah. I've been leafing through it. I also just absolutely love it. I've, it's become oh, like a project so of mine. Oh, thank so you. So I may be... I'm at moisturizers and serums at the moment, <laughs> so I'm going through it and bookmarking each product I'm that I want it, to try. I'm finding it amazing how people are sort of reading it, you know, page by page, because I, I always thought it would just be something that people dip in and out of. And I'm having so many people saying, right, so I'm going through every single page and I'm reading it right through. And yeah. I'm just, that's fascinating to I'm me. I'm being very methodical <laughs> about it. I'm like, this is like my skin face 2.0 yeah. the winter oh, glow so, up so but pleased. it's a really big book yes. and incredible that you've managed to do that in seven months yes it nearly killed me but what, thank you <laughs> <laughs> what was the process of putting it together like what does it what does the research look like for beauty journalism okay so for me everything always starts with the product if it's a if it's a great product that you know that's where we that's where we begin that's what it's all about and for that you know i had millions <laughs> it felt like millions I would say I would say maybe thousands of wow. products that I sort of went through and trialed myself and also had certain things trialed by other people um, that I know um, people who may have had sort of different sort of skincare needs to me so I don't have particularly dry skin but I still trialed certain products because I wanted to trial them for texture and for scent and for you know how they feel on your skin and so on and so forth but I'd also have maybe someone else with drier skin to also try that to see how it sort of works on them mm. because I didn't want to exclude anyone so there were lots of that sort of that sort of process was going on before I actually even began sort of writing. How did you evaluate the question of price because one of mm. the things that I find a little bit difficult mm. about sort of engaging with beauty journalism yes. and skincare recommendations mm. is that they're often so expensive. Yes. Yeah. So, so expensive. And even though I know that in terms, if you think about it in terms of cost per wear, like mm. you wear your face yeah, yeah, out yeah, every yeah, day, yeah, so totally. you should invest in it. Yes. But, but you know, I think the reality also is that, yes, we can say that, but, you know, people's budgets are people's budgets. Right. So, I mean, I did look at that. Um, I never wanted to compromise on quality, but I've always said, and I've always said this in my writing as well, just because something is super expensive doesn't necessarily mean it's good. There are different price points there but and I try to incorporate that as much as possible but my I think my greatest thing was all about the quality mm. um but there are there are a few things even with hair care as well you know there are quite a few um hair care products that are sort of under 10 pounds and so on so yeah and did you have any trouble convincing people whether it's publishers or other beauty journalists that there was a market for this book? I think everyone knew in some ways that there was a market for this book and it hadn't been done before. One of the questions I had was, where are you going to find all these products? You know, I remember, you know, someone saying that to me that, yeah, it's a great idea, but surely there's nothing there for women of colour. That's the whole issue. But, you know, I would say that, yes, there is stuff for us there, but it's just that we are not marketed to. You know, you look at sort of a lot of the advertising for skincare brands, for instance, or, you know, even some makeup brands and you don't see yourself. So, of course, automatically you just assume that, well, it's not really for me. But I guess 
I have the privilege of being in a position where it's my job to know about products and to try those products and write about those products. And so I've got a different perspective. I've been able to find out that actually, even though all the blurb and the campaign ad for this particular skincare product doesn't have anyone who resembles me remotely, I've trialed this because it's part of my job and I know that it works for us. So, um, so I didn't have any issues with that in terms of finding the products. With regards to publishers, I have to say they were completely on board right from the start. Wow, they okay. were hungry for it. Okay. Um, my publisher now, Hodder and Stoughton, I had um, the incredible editorial director, Melissa Cox. She sent this amazing letter when my agent had put out I don't know what what you call what you call the process, but it's sort of yeah the sort of she's put to tender basically Mm. this book to a few publishers, and it was a little bit of a publishing sort of war. Ooh, that's great! Yeah, and Melissa wrote this incredible letter, um, just talking about her passion for this project and why she feels they'd be the right people and and why she wants to get involved and so on and so forth. And that for me was just everything because. It wasn't just about the money or the deal or whatever. It was also that I was going to have a publisher who was just 100% behind this and just got it. And Hodder got it right from the start. So, um, yeah, so it was super exciting. I mean, we got a deal within sort of, I don't know, 24 hours. Oh, wow. Of sending oh, out, yeah, of sending <laughs> out um, the, um, you know, the initial sort of... Um, notes on what I was intending to do. That's incredible. Yeah. And I think very encouraging. Yeah. Something you've touched on there that I think is really important is that this book is, you know, on the surface, it's about helping women of colour, mm. you know, level up their beauty routines. Yes. But to me, the way I interpret it, and I'm sure to you writing it, it mm. means so much more. Oh, and yeah. I think it's a really necessary step in tackling what is racism absolutely let's call it what it is yeah you know essentially I think we try and sugarcoat it but essentially that's what it is it's a that's a really harsh word and no one will sort of openly sort of say oh oh yes you know that kind of behavior is actually racist but that's essentially what it is as shocking as it sounds and you're right you know I've for me this book is so much more than a beauty book yes it's about um, you know, providing solutions to certain problems that are, you know, skincare issues or hair care or whatever. But my my whole idea really came from the the fact that I still think that women of colour, black women, are not really sort of represented across the board. I just don't think what we what we're doing at the moment is great in terms of the industry and so on. But it hasn't gone far enough. Mm. And I still know that the issues are still definitely there. I think we're scraping the surface at the moment, but the issues are still there. You know, my my um, vision for the book was never really about, you know, writing a beauty book. I'd never considered writing a beauty book, even though I'd been asked that question so many times. I knew that if I was going to write anything like this, it had to have a purpose without, you know, without meaning to sound lofty or sort of earnest about it. But, uh, you know, that was really my thinking. I just, I'd never thought about writing a beauty book, but I wanted something that actually had a message and had a purpose. And I guess this 
this is how it manifested itself. Mm. Something that you said, I think it's either within the book or it might have been in an interview in an article that you wrote for The Observer last weekend was that some tone deaf brands, and I'm quoting here, Mm. don't believe darker skinned women are their audience and have purposely limited their foundation colours. And I found that quite shocking. Yes, it is shocking, isn't it? It is never, ever an oversight. It usually, a lot of times it boils down to them not feeling that um, the darker skinned woman is their customer base. I've seen it. Mm. Um, I'm not going to mention names, you know, but I've, I've seen it and I know that to be a fact. They feel that that customer base isn't really their customer base. And then also there's the idea that, you know, there's not enough shelf space for it or it's too expensive you know there's always some kind of an excuse and I do think that retailers are in a position where they could really help that situation there are some brands that are maybe smaller and it's really expensive for them to make stuff but I think well if you're stepping into that realm of making bases for you to completely exclude one race or a particular demographic because it's too expensive. What you're basically saying is that the lighter you are, the whiter you are, the more important you are. And that's why we're catering for you. You're darker. We don't have enough money for you. So we're not going to cater for you. And that that for me is just, I mean, my mind sort of boggles as to how people think that that's okay. But retailers accept that. And that's Part of the problem as well, retailers accept that. I think if retailers could, you know, sort of say, right, if you are not inclusive, we are not taking your brand. Mm. I think that would make a huge difference. And also if retailers could give shelf space to brands who do make, um, you know, shades for darker skins, if they could give shelf space to those brands as well, that would also help the situation. But at the moment, that's that's the problem that a quite a few brands are facing and they've told me that look we do make all of these shades but we are told by retailers that there's not enough shelf space so we can't we can't actually stock all of them so which is why you know I had someone send me a picture from a sort of from a retailer where they had all of these sort of concealers and honestly they were so so biscuit colored mm. it was unbelievable and that was the range of concealers and I know as a journalist I've I've worked with the brand in question and I know that they have the darker shades but you as a consumer would probably find it quite difficult to find them because in many of the retail stores that they're actually stocked in they don't carry those shades. Mm, I've had that happen to me with a brand who shall not be named, but is the brand that I buy my concealer from. And whenever I go through airports oh, and duty talk, oh, free... Look, let's not talk about the airport situation <laughs> because obviously we black people don't travel. Right, exactly. Right? And yeah. they're always... I, I almost feel bad. The last time I really brought it up with the sales assistant mm. and she was so sheepish. She was I'm so sorry. Yeah, people say no, this I feel all the for time. Them because it's in many ways, how do they they're not at the, in the position where they can really influence change. Mm. That is the problem. They're not in the position where they can influence change. Their voices are not big enough. Their voices are not heard. Speaking of people who have responsibility, because you've pinpointed retailers there and mm. the role that they play in the yes. process. Another sort of, I guess, entity that has a huge responsibility and has a lot of power is magazines Absolutely. and fashion magazines. Yes. And I think sometimes I feel like, I still feel like often I flick through magazines it's definitely improving yes it is but i still tend to skip over the beauty pages Mm, a little bit mm, mm -hmm. because 
that chances are they're not going to have anything yes, for me. Yeah, yeah. So what responsibility and what should fashion magazines be doing? I just this? think that I think people sh- need to be much more educated. You know, I can write about self-tanning. I can write about, you know, colour um, on Caucasian hair and so on. And I'm a black woman. I just think that my white counterparts should be able to write about other things that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily, you know, suited to their skin tone or their hair type, because that's just your job. You know, there are some people who do that really, really well. I think Sally Hughes is fantastic. She is. She's always been super inclusive in her writing, um, not because it's been fashionable, but she's been doing it long before anyone was even talking about it. She just does it because that's what you do. That's a very um, notable exception. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. She's yeah. fantastic. Um, Sally's brilliant. So, you know, she's one of the few that I can definitely pinpoint and say, yes, when she writes, she writes across the board. Um, but I do think, yeah, a lot of change still needs to be done. I think people just need to be much more educated. And rather than, you know, when you have to write something to do with Afro hair or, you know, darker skin, you sort of then maybe commission the odd feature out to like a black writer. I just think just learn about it and, you know, talk to experts. And, you know, if you feel that your voice doesn't carry weight when you're talking about these things, involve some experts and and just write a feature that addresses these issues. But if you bring in the voices of other experts within that field, then it will be a respectable article that people will, you know, they'll read and they'll receive it. Mm. More broadly within the fashion industry Mm. as a whole, I feel like there's a real tension between what I see as certain fashion brands kind of leveraging what I'd call black cool. Yeah. So they use, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I know, I I say this all the time. I'm like, we're fashionable right now, aren't we? Right, we're very on trend, which is also... It's terrifying. Terrifying, Because, Because, you know, on trend, trends move. Right. Right? Exactly, but I'm always going to be black, so... Exactly, so where do we go? (laughs) Exactly, but something that I find really galling is, yeah, so, you know, you kind of see, like, black, you know, hip-hop stars, artists, Mm. rappers, musicians... Mm you know, they're fronting campaigns. But then these same, um, sometimes it'll be magazines, other times it'll be brands, luxury brands. They're still making these missteps. Yes. Why do you feel that? It's like I start start to feel tokenized. And sometimes I feel tokenized when certain brands reach out to work with me. Mm. And I'm a bit like, I don't really feel like... This is really kind of authentic or real. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I think most of the issues happen because the people who are making the decisions are still predominantly white. Mm. I I think, I I mean, I really don't think it's sort of rocket science. I just think that, you know, people can talk about them having a diverse workforce and so on and so forth. But, you know, if we have a look at it properly, who has the power? Who's making the decisions? Mm. I was reading... um, the recent sort of issue of um, the business of fashion and it's all dedicated to inclusivity and diversity and there was one particular piece where it showed all of the um sort of all of the sort of figures of authority basically at all the big major fashion houses and fashion groups i think i saw one black face there what has it been like for you working within, because you've been working within the fashion industry for like 20 or yeah, years. Yeah, about, yes, yeah, coming up to 20 years now. Yeah. yeah. What has that been like for you as a black woman navigating what 
particularly imagine when you started out and mm. probably still to this day is a predominantly white space. It has been challenging, definitely. I think um, there have been many moments in my career that I know that I've been passed over because I didn't look the part. Absolutely, without a doubt. I know that for a fact. And um, That's it devastating. Has been. Yeah, you know, but you know, we deal with these things all the time and I feel that we're... <sighs> We are just constantly, we have these situations that we deal with so often that we're almost, it sounds really dreadful, but you're almost kind of used to it and you just press on because what else do you do? You know, um, you, you just press on because that's what you have to do. It's almost like a survival technique in many ways. You just press on. So, um, so, yeah, I think there have been moments that have been quite difficult. Um, there are moments that I I know that my work is so much better, but doesn't necessarily get the credit it deserves. You know, I've had that. I've had those moments um, within my career. I think that things have changed in the sense that I feel that I'm more able to use my voice. I think the difficulty in the past is that, you know, you were sort of the only one. You were one of the few sort of black faces in a very white space. But not just that, you didn't feel that you could vocalise some of your feelings because there was no one there who would really understand or really get it or they'd be so uncomfortable with it, they just don't want to acknowledge it. Like I remember a few years, quite a few years back, I was um, at a magazine and I was on the fashion team and it was you know, it was a, it was basically a white office. I was the only person of colour there. And um, I remember that we, I can't remember whether it was a collaboration with this art gallery or whether it was just a, an event at this art gallery. Anyway, I was invited as well. And I turned up to this, um, you know, this event and it was on Bond Street. And I hadn't actually noticed at that point that I was the only black one in the room, maybe because I was just so used to always being the black one in the room anyway. So it was just like, okay, mm. it is what it is. Mm. And I was standing not too far from the cloakroom. I'd arrived not too long ago, standing not too far from the cloakroom. <laughs> I can see your face. <laughs> standing not too far from the cloakroom. And um, a lady came in. I remember she was quite sort of jeweled and sort of, you know, um, very you know, done hair and sort of blonde lady, sort of quite grand. And she took off her coat and she literally threw it at me. And I'm there standing with this coat on, um, you know, in my arms. And I, and I said to her, I'm really sorry, but I don't work here. And she didn't apologise or no. anything. She just grabbed her coat and then she walked towards the sort of cloakroom. I mean, it was such an odd experience. And then I tried to explain this to a colleague of mine and and she was just like, oh, but are you sure it's because you were black or is it sure? You know, and, you know, at moments like that are even more devastating in the sense that you just feel so isolated because mm -hmm. you can never really address these issues mm. um whether really really tiny or whether really obvious you could never really address this issue it's almost like you had to sort of tone down your blackness or tone down the issues that come with you being black mm. and and i had a lot of that there was there were tons of that but what used to be really lovely actually is that you know when i'd do the shows every so often you'd see another black face and i remember 
is a stylist, um, Cheryl Conte, who was just so wonderful. And she, I would spot her long before we even became friends or worked together or anything. I would spot her at shows and we would just kind of look at each other and just give that nod, you know, <laughs> that sort of acknowledgement, that sort of like, hey, I see you, you know. And, um, and I remember when we finally, you know, got to work together and, and we're friends and we would have that conversation about, yeah, you remember those times when we'd see each other at the shows and, and so on. And, you know, she was like, yeah, it was just nice to see another black person who wasn't sort of relegated to cleaning the loos mm -hmm. or being, you know, being the cleaner or being that not that there's anything wrong with those jobs, but, you know, just acknowledging that, OK, we, we don't have to be limited in what we do and yeah, you know or, you know so it was just that was so that was really sort of heartwarming um but yeah it took a while before I started seeing a lot of you know a lot of brown and black faces in the industry it, it took a while and I think you're right in that things are changing both behind the scenes and you know on magazine covers yes. I think it was last year it was you know last September maybe September 2018 where everyone talked about the fact that I think for the first time ever, like all of the major September yes, covers yeah, yeah. were black women. Yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. was specifically yes, black women. It was, yeah, which is amazing because like September issues are like the big issues right. in the industry. And, you know, it just completely debunked that whole myth of, oh, black doesn't sell. Mm, so, exactly. Yeah, the I fact that you would put a woman of colour mm. on the front of your most predictable prestigious um issue of the year I mean mm. that was that was really quite something it was funny I almost felt like and I know that well I presume that magazines don't like coordinate like that mm -hmm. but I did think it was a really interesting it was interesting because they don't coordinate I mean because they're all in com competition with one another right. so they don't so I mean I think it marked a moment but I guess it's it which is so super super exciting and there's so many quite a few people who are really championing that and pushing that mm. drive towards us, you know, thinking about inclusivity and just making it the norm. You know, people like Edward Enninfall, I think Ed, what Edward has done is is just amazing. I really, really think it's amazing. And I, you know, he's inspired so many people to use their voice and feel, you know, not feel so sort of silenced and not feel so afraid to speak out about certain things because he's done it. He's spoken out about certain things and done it in such an elegant and eloquent way. And he's shown the results of that through, you know, what Vogue looks like at the moment. So, and I think that's great. I think it's great. Definitely. I think the one thing that I found a little bit bittersweet or mm -hmm. maybe a little bit uncomfortable about that spread of September issues yes. was if I remember correctly mm. and this isn't trying to set up some sort of like competition yeah, yeah. but the majority of mm. the black women mm. featured were light-skinned black yeah, women totally we still have that issue you know and there's yeah this kind of acceptable form of yeah, blackness yeah, yeah. like yeah, it's yeah. colorism oh like yeah totally oh big time hugely and we see that in all sort of areas you know and um I've seen that when I've worked with certain brands or even you know past magazines where you know there are certain types of blackness that is it's almost like a palatable type of blackness so I think we still have those issues I mean even if you look at the in music industry right you know it's always the fairer skinned and and so on that are sort of celebrated and and so on and so forth I still have you know a lot of people who work in the industry you know white colleagues who when they say someone's really 
beautiful. A lot of times they're referring to someone who's quite pale skinned. And when they and when they say a very, very dark skinned person is really beautiful, it's almost almost like they need a pat on the back to to um say how, you know, how woke they are by recognizing that a very dark person is also beautiful. I mean, it's a weird complicated, very, very layered um, thing, colorism, isn't it? Because I think so many people, they are complicit in in this narrative and this Mm -hmm. issue, but without actually realizing it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really tricky one. But it's even a problem within the black community, like yes. something I've been writing about, like it's not just about white people no, satisfy, I think, yeah, stratifying yeah. black mm, people. It's mm, actually, mm. and this also applies within all communities yes, of colour. Yes, yeah. Asian people, South American mm. people have the same thing. Totally. And like, for instance, with like the natural hair movement, mm. you know, I stopped relaxing my hair like mm. four or five years ago mm. and I wear my hair natural or in braids mm. and I love it. But I've also noticed that my idea of what my hair was going to look like mm. and all the images that you see at the front of mm. the natural hair movement mm. are... It's still kind of... It's like yeah. lighter skinned or yeah, biracial yeah, 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 totally. women. Yeah, and... yeah, completely. I mean, I have a, you know, I, I've noticed that. I certainly noticed that, certainly at the beginning mm. of, you know, because I haven't relaxed my hair for a long time um, either. I think probably about coming up, to, maybe about six years now. Oh, wow. And um, and I've noticed that as well. It's almost like the natural hair that's celebrated is the one that sort of still looks a little bit European. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, we're so messed up. I mean, goodness <laughs> me. It's it's a mess. It it's a hot a mess. mess. It's a hot mess. What's your relationship with, and I hope you don't mind me asking, but no, what's your me. relationship with your appearance? Like, like, what sorts of messages did you get as a young dark skin like mm, me, like a young dark skin mm, girl? Mm growing up because mm. you grew up partially in London but you yes. also lived in Nigeria yes, for about five for years, years yes. like big Yay. up Nigeria whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, but I'm really curious as to what messages you got about beauty skin tone. and skin tone yeah, yeah absolutely I think so my mother was incredibly fair really very very fair skinned and um and my sister was also um very fair and we're sort of you know, only sort of 11 months apart sort of thing. So a lot of people thought we were twins. Mm. And I was the dark one because I took after my father and my father's side. So, you know, there was almost sometimes an unspoken and sometimes a very explicit sort of idea that, oh, you know, I'm the less attractive one than my sister. But Mm. I mean, thankfully, I mean, my sister and I, and I've got another sister as well, we're so close that those kind of, issues never sort of came between us because Mm. we, I don't know, we just have this crazy closeness. And um, I don't even think it's something that we really even acknowledge with each other because we just loved each other for who we were. And it wasn't about what we looked like or anything like that. Mm. Um, But yes, I was very aware of it from a very young age. And there was also this idea that, you know, because you're dark skin, you know, and I was actually quite stubborn as well. So it was almost (laughs) like, you know, dark and bad you know <laughs> totally I totally get it yeah. yeah yeah so there was definitely that um so I I think I sensed that from a very young age and also you know my features aren't particularly European you know my nose is quite wide you know mm. African nose the lips are sort of you know they're not sort of petite and you know polite um so I think 
certainly in my teen years, I probably struggled with that because I saw no one who looked like me mm. at all. Um, so I think, yeah, that was quite, that was quite difficult. Mm. I couldn't sort of, I couldn't, I remember thinking about it actually recently. And the term that came to mind was that I couldn't co come to terms with my face. Struggled. I, I think I struggled for quite a while because I just didn't see anyone who looked like me. And even if I saw, you know, other black women and so on, you know, they always had thinner noses. They always had a certain way, you know, their, their faces were shaped differently. The, the ones that were considered beautiful mm. never, ever looked like me. Um, you know, so, so yeah, I remember someone sort of saying, you know, referring to me and saying, oh yes, you know, in terms of, you know, comparing my sister and I and saying, oh yes, she's the more African looking one. And for years that sort of haunted me because it wasn't sort of said as a statement of fact, it was said as, yes, she's the more African looking one, therefore she's the less attractive one. Um, so for a long time, that sort of was kind of difficult to sort of get your head around. Mm. Um, that is, that does sound really difficult because I think I have two older sisters, mm. but we all look we're all similar skin tones mm. and I think we all look quite similar. Mm. So I think even if, you know, we're all dark skinned black women, but mm. there was never that thing of com being compared yes, against yes, each yeah. other, yes. other, which obviously comes from like an external yes, it's point all, of yes, view, but totally. that's still really difficult to navigate. Mm. I think something that I struggled with a bit, particularly as I went to a sort of predominantly white school mm, mm. was just being over especially when I was a teenager just being mm. overlooked by mm. boys like mm. I never felt like I was attractive yes. to boys yeah. or never felt like I was like up for consideration mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. that makes mm -hmm. sense mm -hmm. and I, it, I was very conscious about yes. the fact that it was just because I was black mm. but obviously nobody would say that and mm. I think I internalized mm. that from quite a young age mm. and it it's taken like a lot of work to kind mm. of get out of yeah, yeah, caring yeah. about that. Yes. I also I mean, want to talk about hair because mm -hmm. I think this is kind of, there's sort of two sides of it mm -hmm. for black women. There's kind of beauty and skin tone, but there's also hair type. Yes. And you said that you've been natural for six, oh, six years, years now. now. Yeah. So what did you do with your hair before that? Goodness, I did so much. I'm I'm surprised that I actually had any hair left. My poor <laughs> hair. I treated it so <sighs> terribly. I was just, you know, and I love hair. And, uh, you know, I've got this piece coming out in the um, Telegraph and I talk about loving my hair. And But I've also said that, but it's strange how I would tell my hair that I loved it, but then I treated it so badly in the sense that I was always trying to change it. But mm -hmm. how do you how do you say you love something that you're constantly trying to change? Mm. You know, and, and that's a question that, you know, I sort of asked myself at one point. But yes, goodness me, I mean I did everything with my hair. I relaxed it, I'd dye it, I'd wear I'd weaves, I'd fry my hair. I I mean I did all manner of evils on my hair. Mm. Um and then I think the it was interesting, actually, when I decided to go natural, it wasn't because, you know, I was on a sort of black power mission. Mm. <laughs> it was actually quite a practical decision that, um, yeah, that was sort of um, inspired by, you know, I had a situation with my son who was born, my son was born very, very prematurely. And 
while when he was born, you know, I'd had this whole idea that, you know, when I'm about to go into hospital, I'm going to get my hair done. I'll get like a new weave or a new braids or something. And, you know, and, you know, everything would be all nice and perfect and so on. Didn't happen like that. I went into sort of an emergency sort of labor situation when he was 28 weeks. And, um, here I was stuck in the intensive care units and the hair wasn't done. <laughs> and you so know, bad to laugh, but I just also know that like, as a black woman, as a black woman, just, I mean, this the is hair like terrible. Has to be done. Like... <laughs> and so, you know, you go through your moments of shock and so on. And then, you know, we were in the hospital. I mean, I wasn't able to stay there because, mm. you know, God bless the NHS, you know, you can't sort of stay for that whole period. But, you know, my son was in hospital for three months and I would literally get there at the crack of dawn and I would leave super late at night with my husband and we get and then we'll do the same routine. Mm. You sort of... um over and over again every single day. And then I got to a point where I just needed a sense of normality. And looking at my face in the mirror, I just kind of thought, I don't recognize this person. And I felt that I needed to be able to see my face in the mirror for my face to look like it normally did, my hair to look like it normally did. So I just feel a little bit normal in Mm. this really very precarious situation Mm. and so one of the things I did I started wearing a little bit of makeup which was very shocking to the people on the ward because they were just like your son is ill how dare you wear makeup that's a whole other conversation Mm. and then I thought actually you know at one point I'm going to go and have my hair done the hot the my hair salon that I would visit nothing fancy just somewhere quite local wasn't too far away from the hospital it was like a quick bus ride So I thought, okay, while he's sleeping at some point in the afternoon where, you know, I know that he won't be awake and it's, you know, and so on, I'll go and have my hair done, which I did. And it was the first time I'd sort of left the hospital for any length of time that, you know, normally I'd leave the hospital to literally go downstairs to grab a coffee or Mm. something. And then I'd be back there sitting by his bedside. Mm. And the whole process of me leaving the hospital and getting to the um, hair salon and then relaxing my hair and so on, it, it was so stressful. I felt so anxious because I felt like I did I don't actually really want to be here I want to be with my son I don't you know how is he doing or maybe he's woken up early you know I was going through all of these kind of crazy emotions to the point where I had my hair relaxed but I couldn't wait for them to even dry my hair before I left so I left And I just rushed back to the hospital. And at that point, I just thought, okay, this is crazy. This, I can't, I just can't keep up with this. I can't do this. Um, I'd given a lot of time in my life to my hair. I always say that I spent most of my student loan in my hairdressers. I spent most of my time skipping lectures during uni (laughs) at my hairdressers. You know, I spent a lot of time in my life on my hair and I just thought okay I just I just can't do this Mm. and that was a turning point for me and I decided okay I'm just going to let my hair do what it normally does and and that's really how I went natural and as time went on I started to question why I needed to have my hair a certain way was I hiding behind my hair what was wrong with my hair why didn't I love my hair in its natural form and appreciate it and it was learning to sort of understand my hair and know my hair and fall in love with my hair as it is 
naturally. So, and that's basically how my sort of natural hair journey began. That is so powerful. <laughs> I don't actually know what to say. I think that is just an incredible, I think, testament to the power of beauty and mm. also how much of, you know, especially women's sort of identity and sense yes. of security is wrapped up in how we look and absolutely it's not something that's frivolous I think mm -hmm. beauty just so often you must get this a lot as a beauty mm -hmm. journalist unfortunately beauty is so often like dismissed as oh being yeah totally frivolous and yes. I'm like, I don't think you understand how much sort of communicative potential it has and absolutely similarly like I haven't been through anything anywhere near like that but I definitely know that when my like braids are like at the end of their mm -hmm. cycle and like I haven't threaded mm -hmm. my eyebrows mm -hmm. and Whatever, like the difference between one week when I suddenly get my hair done, mm, get my eyebrows done, yes, get my nails done, yeah. it changes my mental it's attitude as well. It's interesting. It's so, so true. Completely. And you think to yourself, but I'm the same person I was last week. Why do I now feel completely different? It's, yeah, it I'm is. I'm more productive. Yeah, yeah, um, yes, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It has an impact, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I want to move on slightly and talk mm. about kind of the world of magazines, yes. which is obviously where your expertise is because you've been working there for so long yes. and something that concerns me and I'm sure it also concerns <laughs> you is the fact that I mean we're all hearing about how like print media is dying and mm, print is mm, dead and mm. you know but especially within women's media it yes. does feel like a lot of print titles are going out of business yes. and shutting down yes. and even some digital titles yes. are shutting down yeah. and I want to understand obviously besides the internet and the fact mm. that you know it's I feel like devalued, I mm, guess, mm. words and writing yes, in that way. Yes. But what's happening? Like what is happening in the industry? Why is everything shutting down? I mean, I think we have many, many more digital and um, print platforms than we ever had before. So, you know, there is, unfortunately, there isn't space for absolutely every one of them. I think a lot of the voices became incredibly similar. You'd go on one site and you go on another site and you go on another site. And between those three, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And so something has to give. I think that um, in terms of print, I, I don't think that print is, is dead. I think, yes, you know, it it's taken a different form because people are consuming information in a very different way. You know, I, I realize now that, you know, when I'm reading a magazine or reading a newspaper, it's actually a form of luxury to me Definitely. in many ways, because I just don't have the time anymore. Mm -hmm. And how I consume a lot of information now on a daily basis is actually via my phone. Mm -hmm. Not even so much my laptop, but, but via my phone. Mm -hmm. But I do think that print still has its place. I think the key is to staying true, having a strong vision and staying true to your DNA. And I think that's what a lot of print titles lost. Mm. I think they all became quite homogenous. You know, so many of them just looked exactly the same. So many of them were trying to mimic another one. I think if you have a strong vision, if you have something different to offer, you will survive. Um, I do think we can't discount um, the digital age. I do think that that's changed things somewhat. So I think there are a lot of things that you would do as a print title in the past and, you know, having sort of 12 issues a year and so on and so forth. And maybe that's just not sustainable anymore. I think we have to kind of look at a different way of sustaining print. But I do still think there's a place for it. It just has to sort of, you know, it just has to adapt to the way people are consuming information mm -hmm. and just offer something 
different and offer a, a strong point of view. I think that that helps because I think niche magazines, from what I know, they're doing quite well. Yeah, they are. They definitely yeah. are. A lot of niche magazines are doing well, but because a lot of them do have a completely different point of view and they have quite a strong... They, a lot of them do have strong journalism. I do think that's one of the thing that, things that really galls me about a lot of digital platforms. The attention to great journalism, I think, has been lost there is in so many much ways. Trash I mean, out there, there is the a internet. lot of rubbish out so there. Much. Yeah, there's a lot of rubbish out there. So I think that's that's problematic. But I don't think that that's I don't think that that's a hindrance that can't be sort of overcome you know we can deal with that by just having better writers yeah and um and paying attention to the words and not treating digital as the sort of um you know the the poor relative to print yeah but also not treating women's media as this kind of like ghetto of intellectualism like yeah, i think yeah, something yeah, yeah. that i find really annoying is that often there are just now very few women's magazines that I think I'm like oh yeah good meaty yeah yeah, yeah. you know a good meaty feature that yes, I'm gonna hang yes, on to this magazine yes. even after I've read it like yes. for shame like often I will buy a magazine once mm. I flip through it I'm like yeah. on the tube whatever which yes. is whereas when I was younger I used to kind of save Collect them and treasure them, them yeah. a bit more so I think there's a slight kind of patronizing thing going on yeah there. I think also you know there's um it's very difficult to be the first mm. you know to in terms of information so because we have social media, we have um, the digital age, which is so, so fast paced, you know, you, it's very hard to open a magazine now and read something that you feel that you haven't read yet. Totally. And I think that's, I think, I think people are finding that quite difficult, mm. but I guess it's a case of, yeah, we then have to work harder or have, you know, a different perspective, just find a new way of doing things. But I think that's one of the issues, you know, Back in the day, you know, you'd have a brand who would come to you and sort of say, oh, in three months time, you know, because when you're in a glossy, you're, you have a longer time lead. Three months time, we're launching this and we're doing this and we can give you the exclusive. It doesn't work like that anymore. Uh, there's a lot of things that land in my inbox and they say, it's launching tomorrow. <laughs> you know, how does a print title sort of navigate that? You know, it is quite difficult, but I think that if one thinks ahead and just thinks about what is our DNA how can we bring a different point of view to this? And how can we challenge our readers and produce something that actually is worthy of keeping hold of? Mm. I think print titles need to be a much, much more special and less throwaway. I think that's how they can they can sort of survive mm. in this age. Agree. And to what extent, because you are both beauty director and executive editor, newly appointed yes. executive editor and beauty director at Glamour. Yes. To what extent is your remit a sort of, especially as, I guess, executive editor, mm. to what extent is it kind of commercial? Like, can you talk me through what your job actually involves? Because <laughs> a lot of the time with editors, I generally don't yeah. know. Like, I know what a staff writer yes. does, but with editors, it kind of I gets a bit easier. I think all our roles as journalists have completely changed. So my role is commercial as well as editorial. Mm. So in many ways, so my role is kind of twofold, I guess. You know, I work under um, Deborah Joseph, the lovely um, editor-in-chief of Glamour. And I guess my role is basically being her kind of right-hand woman in many ways. I do, I mean, every day my job is completely different. So mm. I oversee all the beauty content 
um, for Glamour, but it's a beauty first brand. So that's basically pretty much everything. So mm. I oversee that. I oversee all our features and so on. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm what, five weeks in now and I'm looking at, okay, which writers do we have? Which columnists do we have? How can we really continue to sort of grow this brand which yes it's a brand that's existed for a long time but in its current incarnation which is as a digital first beauty first brand it's only really been alive for what maybe 18 months mm. or so and we have two print issues a year so it's kind of looking at the overall strategy of the brand itself and where that's going and what we what we sort of do with it. Mm. So whether that's, you know, bringing in new voices, what does it look like? What is our, um, you know, what is our mantra? What is, you know, what do we stand for? You know, all of those kind of, I guess, big thinking stuff mm. is part of my role. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I could be editing copy. I could be um, meeting with a potential big advertiser um, to discuss future projects. I could be okay in stuff that we're doing at our festival. We have two beauty festivals twice a year. There's mm. one coming up in in um, Manchester at the beginning of November. And then we have another one at the Saatchi Gallery in London in March. Mm -hmm. So working on who we have as panelists and, you know, what sort of topics that we're going to be covering. You know, just, just it's so diverse, my role, like every single day is a completely different day. I mean, something else I wanted to talk to you about is consulting. Because yes. I know you have and maybe still do mm. consulted mm. for, you know, brands yeah. in a variety of guises. Mm. A question that I get asked a lot, particularly from people who've, you know, just left university mm. and mm. they, I guess they look at my profile, they look mm. at my career and they're like, oh, I really want to become a freelance brand consultant. How did you do that? <laughs> and also I should add that brand consulting is like a small part of what I do. Mm. Like it's by no means mm. the main, but I get that question a lot mm. and I find it difficult to answer. Yes. Um, yeah. We were talking about that before. What yes. do you make of that? I mean, it's funny you should say that actually, because relatively recently I had someone ask me that question. I do get a lot of career questions mm. um, from people about getting into the beauty industry and so on and so forth. And someone asked me recently, how do I become a brand? I want to be a brand consultant. <laughs> and it was difficult trying to explain how it works. Being a brand consultant is not something that you leave uni or leave school or whatever and decide that's what you're going to do. Being a brand consultant comes from years of experience and having expertise in your field. So you need to work in that field and really understand the industry you're in. And then you become a brand consultant. And in many ways, you're almost sort of, it's a strange thing, you're almost invited to be a brand consultant. So, you know, I'd have certainly, especially, you know, without and um, before sort of working at Glamour, a lot of my work was brand consultancy. Yes, I was also a contributing editor at Vogue, but I was doing a lot of consultancies for brands. And I have been doing that um, over a long period of time. But a lot of times they get in contact with you and sort of say, we would like you to come and meet with us and talk to us through you know, what we should be doing or how, you know, what the strategy of the brand should be and so on and so forth. 
what you think is right with this product, what's not right with it, what's right with this marketing, what's, you know, all of that sort of thing. You can't deliver that information if you don't have the experience of working within the industry. Mm -hmm. So it's not something you can just suddenly say, oh, okay, I'm just going to be a brand consultant. You have to have the expertise to be able to inform that. Mm. So that's I, how you become a brand consultant. Sorry, it's not a, <laughs> it's not an immediate thing. It's not an immediate job. It's, it's something you do after years. Yeah. Yeah. I th I'm glad you said that because that's essentially how I feel about it. Mm. And I'm always just like, you need to like get a job first. Yes, like, I absolutely. Don't know, I, I also think sometimes I feel like there's a real desire I think there's just you know the freelance life and mm. self-employed life mm. has been glamorized to an extent mm. and you know I definitely enjoy this way of working mm. but I also think it's really important to gain experience Absolutely. of working within a company Absolutely. working within an office like totally you learn because so I much. think your your lived experience is not enough mm. to be a brand consultant yeah you know, people think that, you know, there are people who think that, oh, well, you know, as a black woman, I know that black women need X, Y, Z for their hair or they need this. And, and that's all great. And that's fine. And I'm not sort of um, underplaying um, one's individual experience, but you need more than that to be yeah. able to go and sit in front of a CEO of one of the world's biggest brands and say, I think you should be doing that. Because mm -hmm. also your experience means that you will carry a certain level of authority. Yeah, definitely. And final question, what advice would you give to someone who in 2019 wants to get into uh, beauty or fashion or magazine journalism? Because I think the path to entry now is probably a lot different mm -hmm. than when you yes. first started yes. out. So how would you say they should approach it? Well, I would say, I mean, certainly if you want to be a journalist, I would say that it's really, really important to have a point of view and it's really important to have a voice. I cannot tell you the number of people who sort of will email me maybe ideas or, um, yeah, mainly sort of ideas of what they want to do and so on. And you can see immediately that they are just trying to sound like someone else or just trying to do what they think is expected. I think don't be afraid to use your voice. Your your voice is what will set you apart from other people and it has to be quite distinct. Have a voice, have a point of view. You can go against the grain. I love when people go against the grain rather than sort of saying certain things because that's what everybody's saying. You know, bring a different point of view to the table. So I think that's really important. I do think that it's important to set up your own platform and start writing, just start writing rather than sort of just waiting for this, you know, um, internship or someone to offer you an assistant job. Just start writing, mm. set up your own sort of Instagram, your own sort of blog or whatever it is so that people can actually see example of examples of your work but I think that's also a really really good thing to to do because now I think people expect so much more than just that oh you love beauty and you've left uni and you want an internship they want to see evidence of your love and your passion for a particular subject in a particular area so um, you need to be able to show that. I think that is a brilliant note on which to end thank you so much for joining thank me you. in the studio thank today. you for having me it's been great. And that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week, but for more career inspiration and information in the meantime, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter, or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. 
You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otegauagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review as it helps other people find the podcast. See you next week.